How has your approach to depression changed over the last 10 years? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. Dr. Diamond is an experienced family physician and an award-winning educator. He is a family physician in private practice in Silverdale, Washington, where he also serves as clinical assistant professor for the University of Washington School of Medicine. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. In your primary practice, how often do depressed patients present with complaints of mood as opposed to physical symptoms? You know, it would be so much easier, and it would save me a great deal of time if I could just get my patients to wear a sign with their diagnosis when they come in. Most of the time they come in and they're complaining of physical symptoms. And I have to be a detective and dig down below those physical symptoms to really sort out what's going on with the patient. I would say in my practice, probably about 80 to 85 percent of the time when patients come in, their diagnosis actually ends up to be depression. They really come in complaining of some sort of a physical symptom. Simon at a group health here in the Seattle area did a study uh, where he looked in at primary care patients when they were actually depressed, and he found in his study that 69% of the time they present with a physical complaint. I think in my practice it's a little bit higher than that. So the vast majority. Oh, by far the vast majority. And there's the dreaded situation where the patient comes in and they have a completely positive review of systems. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they taught me a long time ago when I did, when I did my residency about 20 years ago that the more positive somebody's review of systems, the more likely they are that they're depressed. But you still have to do your due diligence and work through all that stuff. So how do you sort out whether they're depressed or not? As a family practice physician, I have to look at the whole patient. And when they have a positive review of systems, I've got to work through all that, do my due diligence and make sure that there's not anything going on from a purely physical perspective. Once I've done that, and usually along the way in working through that review of systems, I get some sort of an indication that this is more than just a physical complaint, but this is an underlying depression. Sometimes I'll use some screening questionnaires and ways, if I'm not sure, to, to sort of discern what's going on with the patient. You know, I used to be a, a street mime in Seattle, and so nonverbal communications has been an important part of my practice. And one of the tools that I use when I'm looking for depression in the patient is a a thing called lakes or puddles. The way it works is that as I'm going through the questions and asking things like, how are things working out at home and how's your job going and that sort of thing, if the patient's saying, you know, everything's going great, but I notice that they get a little puddle of a tear, it doesn't even have to spill out. It's just a little puddle that's there and two or three blinks and it's gone. Depending on how far behind I am, I may loop back and say, you know, you said when I asked you how things were going at home that everything was great, but you look like you were a little bit stressed. Are you really doing okay? And then the floodgates open up and we get down to what's really bothering the patient. So that's one of the nonverbal clues that I have found to be very helpful in looking for those folks. You mentioned an important thing uh, that we all face, but certainly in primary care, I think you all have it the worst, is if you have enough time or how far you're behind, how do you make enough time to ferret all this out? I would say that is the most difficult thing going on in my practice right now, is trying to figure out how to prioritize the time. And most of the time, if I have a patient who is finally dropping their guard and letting me backstage, so to speak, I'm willing to run a little bit late and take the time with those patients. So it's a matter of priority. I can treat runny noses and sore throats, or I can go backstage with patients where I can really make a difference in their lives. 
Yeah, I always wondered, you know, as psychiatrists, we have a, a very leisurely hour to 90 minutes to figure this out, where I know you don't have nearly that much time. You know, one of my mentors a thousand years ago said, when you get a thank you note from a patient, after you've read it, put it in a little file, and then you keep those there until you either retire or get sued. You want to remember why you want to be a doctor in the first place. There are no thank you notes in my file, which is now after 20 years getting pretty thick. There are no thank you notes in there that say, thanks for controlling my blood pressure, mm-hmm. or thanks for getting my A1C to go. You rock. You're an amazing doctor. But I have a bunch of thank you notes in there that say things like, thanks for giving me my life back, or thanks for helping my husband or my wife. I didn't think there was any hope for, our, for us or, or for my spouse. Uh, you made a big difference. It's so rewarding that I'm willing to run a little bit late and make those adjustments in my schedule to try to take care of people on that sort of a level because I really feel like in the long-term scheme of things, I'm making a tremendous difference in patients' lives. So besides the, the puddle, I love that, any other kind of clues that you could pass on to other physicians about how to pick up depression? Well, I think on the nonverbal sense, when they're not making good eye contact and they're, you know, they're kind of slouched forward and looking down, kind of skirting around the issues, sometimes those are good clues that, that patients are really struggling with something else. I mean, the one that they taught us all in medical school, if the patient's sitting there with their arms crossed and their legs crossed, you know, they probably have, or they're pretty closed. And that's a, that's a real obvious one, but it's the, when they come in looking sad. I've often thought about Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore and which one of those characters had which diagnosis. And, and there's debate whether or not Eeyore actually had cyclothymic disorder, dysthymia, or depression, but I think he probably was depressed. And when I see somebody, see somebody that walks in looking like Eeyore, where they don't have a lot of color in their face, their clothing is kind of a gray color, and their their voice is kind of a, always rains on my birthday, but what's the use? No one remembers anyway. If they walk and talk and look like Eeyore, fairly good chance that they've got an underlying depression, even though they're coming in saying, you know, I've got this pain in my belly that's been driving me crazy for about a month now. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. We're discussing how to figure out if a patient is depressed if they present with a different problem. Dan, so let's say you do make the diagnosis of depression. What do you say to the patient when they say, you mean it's all in my head? You know, that's, that is a fabulous question because my understanding of what depression is has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. There was a time where I would have said, and I have said to patients, yeah, it's in your head because that's where your brain is, and your brain is the the part of your body that's actually depressed. But now our understanding of depression has changed tremendously. We know that it's not just the brain that is not functioning correctly, but it's the entire central nervous system. And even beyond the central nervous system, there's things that happen with the rest of the body when a person gets depressed. Increased risk of diabetes, myocardial infarction, stroke, even down to the level of platelet dysfunction, all can be related to depression. So I'm now telling patients, you know, it's not all in your head, but it also involves your spinal cord. It involves the rest of your central nervous system. It involves your endocrine system, just your entire body. It's not just a mood disorder. Depression really 
impacts the entire person. So in light of that, how has your approach to the patient changed when they come back in for follow-up? The biggest thing that happened for me was realizing, and this was one of those aha moments in my life, you know, I knew that physical symptoms were very relevant in making the diagnosis of depression. More positive review of systems, like I mentioned, the more likely that the patient is depressed. But once I made the diagnosis of depression, it used to be a relief. It was kind of like, oh, phew, man, I'm glad. It's just depression. All I have to do is treat them from the eyebrows up, and everything else will take care of itself. You know, now I know that the physical symptoms are relevant after I make that diagnosis. In a lot of ways, more important after I make the diagnosis. Fava did a study where he took the study medication and placebo, lumped them all together, and then split up the data looking at whether or not the patients had a 50% improvement of their physical symptoms or not. And he found that if patients had a 50% improvement of their physical symptoms side of the equation, their remission rate was twice as high as the patients that didn't have an improvement, a 50% improvement of their physical symptoms. So suggesting that if patients have lots of physical symptoms, they're more difficult to get to remission. So the first thing I know is physical symptoms predict who's going to be difficult to treat. But perhaps even more importantly, when I look at Paykel's study, which actually was very concerning to me, this was, it showed, he showed that if people have residual symptoms and you're treating them for depression, they don't get all the way well, their relapse rate is 76% versus 25% relapse rate if they get all the way well. Mm-hmm. So remission is the goal, but the remission needs to take care of all those residual symptoms. In that arm that had 76% remission, I mean relapse rate, 94% of those folks had persistent physical symptoms. To me, that's huge. But yet I wasn't even asking my patients about the physical symptoms, and they weren't telling me. And I think the reason they weren't telling me is that I just got done telling them at the previous visit that the depression was all in their head. It was just a brain problem, and it had nothing to do with their physical symptoms. And so the patients had dismissed their symptoms as being irrelevant as well. Greco published a study showing that the most difficult part to get well are the physical symptoms. It's very easy to improve somebody's mood. We have a lot of options, and that responds most quickly. But when we really get down to the nitty-gritty, improving the physical symptoms side of the equation, whether it's pain or fatigue, we really have to be vigilant. So I would guess the short answer to my long answer would be I've got a new question now that I ask people when they come in for follow-up. And I found this in Sierra Leone on the west coast of Africa. They greet each other in Sierra Leone by saying, how the body, man? And the answer back, oh, the body, fine, fine, fine. So when I have my patients coming in for a follow-up on their depression, I ask them, how are you doing from the eyebrows down? How's your body? I'm not done until you're all the way well. So how do you set the expectations for the patient? You know, I try to work with my patients from the very get-go, from the day that I make the diagnosis and explain to them about depression, that what I want to do is get you all the way well. And that means all the way well from the eyebrows up, and all the way well from the eyebrows down. If I don't get you all the way well, you're three times more likely to relapse. So how are we going to get you there? Well, medications is part of it. Counseling is part of it. And we all know that medications plus counseling is significantly better than medications or counseling. If we do the two together, I talk to people about forming a good support group that they can rely on and encourage them to start talking to their friends. 
And the example that I use is that, is that life is like walking on a glacier. You're in one of three situations. You're either by yourself, which is dangerous. You fall in a crevasse and nobody knows. It gets cold and wet and, and dark and then you die. Or you're in a crowd, which is a little bit safer. Maybe somebody will see you go and they can go get special people and special equipment. The best scenario of all is to be roped up with a group of people. And that's inconvenient because you have to wear the harness and it causes chafing. And if the people on the rope fall, you have to go to work. And if you fall, God forbid, then they know. And so it's embarrassing, but it's safer. So getting together with, with a group of people once a week, meeting them for breakfast and having a support group is very helpful. So medications, counseling, support group, I try to get them exercising. And then we also discuss some of the spiritual aspects of depression as well. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Dan Diamond. We have been discussing the evolving treatment of depression. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.